Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne here with the No Film School podcast for the week of January 14th, 2022. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins. Hello. I'm here with Todd Blankenship. Hello. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman, decided not to join us this week because he doesn't like all of you in the audience. He told me that specifically. specifically you. You listening yes. to this? He said it was, it was, it was your fault. And he just <laughs> couldn't deal with you hearing his voice for another week. So, this week. I, I just realized we have time to talk Sundance next week because Sundance doesn't start for nine days. So we're going to talk about Sundance next week. That's a little teaser for next week for Sundance. This week, we're going to be talking about the Golden Globes just is a continued shit show. Then we're going to be talking and how its problems with inclusivity ripple down to indie filmmakers. We're going to be talking about the news that has just come out that Top Gun Maverick did not want its VFX artists promoting their work, which is an interesting thing to talk about a lot. You know, a lot of us are indie filmmakers, but a lot of us also work on bigger projects. And that's odd. And we're going to be talking about the crew of Megalopolis quitting. Ah, Coppola. You, you, <laughs> you, those boomers, man, they just are, are he's greatest generation, right? Uh, they just don't change. They just don't change. But the crews have, I think. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So our lead story this week. Golden Globes managed to do 10 Best Picture nominees and five Best Director nominees. And it's all dudes. Which again? is Again, it's some classic. If you haven't been following the last couple of years, the, the Golden Globes are sort of, they're really committed to the like, well, what if all the best movies are just made by white dudes bit that it's, it's sort of been a stubborn thing they've been doing for the last couple of years. One thing you might be thinking is, wait a minute, the Golden Globes still exist. They weren't on TV last year. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to be on TV this year. Honestly, I wonder if this is fucking trolling. I wonder if they're deliberately doing something trolly and boomerish to try and get clicks and attention because we all mm -hmm. forgot they were here. But I think there's there's good things to remember when we think about diversity, when we're putting together our friends and family screenings, when we're putting together film festivals, when we're building our crews, which is that, like, it is just to like, if if you do a hunt for a position and you come up with all dudes, you need to take a second Unless it's like the role of a man in your script. I'm not talking about <laughs> casting. I'm talking about crewing. But if you do a hunt for a position and it comes up all dudes, you need to slow down and look at how you managed your hunt that you got results that are so statistically unlikely and inappropriate. Because you can make the argument, well, we just did our selection process the same way we have for 70 years. And you can make that about like best director for the Globes or searching for a cinematographer. But, you know, you have to look at the patterns that are creating the patterns. And if your product sucks, and I would say that an underversed selection is a sucky product, it's it's less likely to to incentivize good work. You have to look at your decision making process. If you're new to the show, the the only reason we talk about award shows is because historically award shows have been a really good have been a good tool for getting people to watch interesting movies they might not have otherwise. Like mm -hmm. undeniably, Parasite got a bigger audience because it won the Academy Award. And so, like, I don't really give a shit about the Academy Awards or Golden Globes. But I do when they have the opportunity to make a mainstream audience see a movie they wouldn't otherwise. Right. And, you know, in a year where Sarah Pauly made Women Talking, and in a year where there are a lot of other, like, you know, yeah. Women there's taking, other, like, Yeah, so there's others. all sorts of shit that, like, you're like, how did your decision-making process tune all of this out? Honestly, I think it's trolling. I, uh, like, yeah. knowing the Golden Globes... You know, I mean, if you guys don't remember, last year it was discovered that there was not a single black member of the Golden Globe voting member of the Golden Globes, like voting group in twenty twenty one. I think. I mean, so just for like me, I see things. I see things like this come out, and I'm like, 
I have two reactions. One, it's like, really? Again? But then I sometimes feel like very quick to feel just like defeated and there's nothing that I can do about it. And, uh, and then I feel sad for my little girl self who like never thought I could do it because I never saw anybody, any Mm. women directors back then. And I'm speaking to two dads of daughters. So like, I'm sure that connects with you at a whole nother level now. But then I do, to your point, Charles, like the looking at how, what we can influence, what we can affect and like what is in our power, like as emerging filmmakers, we really do need to be thinking proactively. And I found a in, in a lot of conversations with people and my peers, it, it's so much focused on the getting to the goal of the product of your short of your film and, and hyper-focused on the production itself that a lot of these things that like hiring are in hiring diversely and proactively seeking diverse heads of departments and people in general, it's just not even considered. I remember reaching out to a um, a friend who was a DP and I was looking to hire somebody for a, a MasterCard commercial that I was working on. And I said, oh, do you know any like lady DPs were looking to make a all-female crew? And he's like, ah, it's embarrassing, but I don't. And I'm like, ooh, that's a you problem. You need to go out and proactively network and diversify your group. Like, Otherwise, like you're just going to think the product itself will will suffer the pro like what you're making at the end of the day, whether it's for a commercial or for your first indie feature, like it will suffer. And I think that's a connection that a lot of people, especially as we're coming up and figuring it out, they're not making that connection and they're not seeing like that. Actually, it's statistically the better, more diverse teams yield better product stories films at the end of the day that's just a fact yeah absolutely and it's it's also- like oh, i was just gonna say it, you know it's it's kind of like uh, with, with film specifically it, it just it's so i don't know clickish and like you, you get you, the people that you work with and you use them over and over and over that sort of thing and if you are looking at the group that you're usually working with and not making changes and trying to become more diverse in that in that way i would say like look at your friend group too like i mean like who who do you hang out with? Like, are you are you, you know like are you just closing yourself off to like drastically improving things? Uh, like you said, it's it's gonna just make everything better, your life better, your work better, all that sort of stuff. And it's you know it's just one of those things. Like you, I, it, it's always bothered me how how like especially in my market, like people people will pick a DP and they'll just use that DP for everything they've ever done ever. And it generally is a man, you know, it's it's like, so it would be so hard to break in. I feel like so safe. It's so like not out of your comfort zone at all. And where, what growth happens there if you're just playing it safe? Absolutely. Well, it's also one of those things that like, I think about this a lot. Like I, one of the things about growing as an artist is to try and make, to try and make explicit the unconscious decisions we make. Like, obviously there's going to be magic unconscious decisions about take three versus take four that like, we can't create a process for why we just prefer take four. Like mm-hmm. that's going to be art, but like we have these processes of hiring people and of figuring out who we're going to collaborate with. And the same way that like, think about how much better your screenwriting got when you like read a couple books on structure and you were like, Oh, other people have thought about this and put effort into this and like have, have can, can break down for you the sequences that you traditionally see. And even if you want to subvert them, it's better to know they're there. There's this amazing Ted talk about why culture is such a bullshit term to use in hiring 
Um, you know, because like famously you hear people talk about hiring and, uh, there's a famous one the Ted talk breaks down this person who gave an example where they were like, well, we were doing interviews and we were looking for a new team member. And like, you know, this guy came in and like, we were all like a hoodies team. And like, we were into basketball and this guy came in in a suit. And as soon as we saw him, we knew not a culture fit. And the HR person who gave this Ted talk was basically like, that's racism. Like that is like, you know, nothing about that person. You don't know how much they wanted the job. You are assuming that the only people who are going to fit in your culture are like a whole bunch of other people who are all the same socioeconomic background as you, who all know the code of we show up in hoodies already and we're basketball people. And this person in a suit probably really wants the job. Yeah. And so like you should like ruling people like culture fit tends to become this like blanket term of something that's like hard to overcome. I mean, you know, I work at a film school which is ironic for the No Film School podcast, but whatever, I didn't name it. Um, and we think about this all the time of like, you know, we have assignments where you are assigned crew. And we've debated this so much, but one of the reasons we assign crew is to deliberately break people out of what happens so often in film schools, which is like the mm. people you go drinking with the first weekend because you have cool leather jackets and they have cool leather jackets are the people you are working with 10 years later. And we really want to try and foster a like, you know, the people I partied with, the people I party with, I mean, I have a kid, I don't party, but like, you know, are not always the best collaborators in my life. Totally. And like, it is like, you want to be looking for all sorts of things when you search for a collaborator. And I think there's benefits in making it a conscious process of, of not just saying, I'm going to go with my gut, but like, I'm going to consciously look for people that bring things to projects and diverse voices and viewpoints is part of the thing that I think makes our work stronger. I mean, like, it's it's so strange to hear someone say, I don't have a female DP in my Rolodex. I've worked with one male DP in the last 15 years. Everything else has been women DPs. Ryan yeah. Coogler, I can't remember the last... I think every project that Ryan Coogler has done has been female DPs. And it's like a Rolodex of many... Like, there is such a deep bench there that, you know, at a certain point... And like, you know, I didn't like... I didn't even see the newest Star Wars movies, but the newest Star Wars movie, J.J. Abrams... There was a, the second unit director was a woman and in interviews, he's like, I asked all my friends for recommendations and nobody had any. And so like, I had to go to bigger and bigger networks because everybody has like the list of like, oh, here are the big, here are the second unit directors that work on these big action movies. Mm -hmm. But he was like, I, this can't only be the people, like these seven people that everybody keeps giving me the same seven names can't be the only people who are capable of doing this. Yeah. Whatever you think of that one. I didn't get around to seeing it. I hear people didn't like it because Palpatine returned somehow. <laughs> I haven't. Palpatine. Um, I don't. I'm not a, I'm an Andor guy uh, in terms of Star Wars. But I think that like making conscious effort to find new collaborators is an exciting thing that should be pursued. Yeah. And yeah. And trying to make the unconscious conscious. It's it's so funny that you talk about like the fir the clicky nature of filmmaking. Both of you mentioned it and how it can really get you stuck in a rut. And like the last thing you want as a filmmaker is to be working with a bunch of yes men, yes people, but like people that are not challenging the work to be better, whether it's an editor. I've worked with edit a couple of editors and who kind of like it, and I feel like this is a thing that is sometimes perpetuated by the film school culture, but they work in fear of the director who comes in from like a, in a tyrant perspective. Mm -hmm. And so they're just like, well, what do you want me to do? And it's like, I, well, I want you to do what's best for the thing. Let's like muscle through it together. And that creative tension, that healthy creative tension is like the best feeling in the world, but it requires like 
vulnerability and going out of your comfort zone. And I laugh at the fact that Charles, you're like, most people, they, it's like the first person they go out with the first weekend. Like I, it's such a young mindset. And I remember like my very first day of college at Michigan, I went out with this like group of women, very nice. Like they all went to camp together. And I like, was like, I don't think I gel with these people, but I remember lying in my dorm room bed and being like, well, I guess these are my friends for the rest of college. It's so limiting. And like, um, and so I think it's like, it's, it's, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so pervasive in this industry. Mm. But so it's like, I wish we could all just be like, okay, we'll grow up a little bit more. If we just shift a little bit forward and we're not lying in our dorm room beds thinking like, well, this is it. Yeah. It's like one of those things. It's like, it's going to take, I'm I'm annoyed at how long it feels like it's going to take to like actually (laughs) get better and, and to see more, more women directors being nominated for things and stuff. And I definitely am not aware of the golden globes. They're not, it's not really on my radar. So I just like looked it up to see like what did get. And it is, it's kind of laughable, honestly, like, Elvis, really? Okay. I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm I'm a deep Bob Lerman fan, and I watched Elvis in the theater and thoroughly enjoyed it. If it if there was an award for the most directed movie, yeah. hands down, Elvis was the most directed movie. That's last very year. true. That's kind of a lot of Boz's style, though. Yeah, yeah there he was so the much directing happening. Can that be a movement that we start on this podcast? Like most directed film? <laughs> oh my god. The uh, Babylon and uh, Elvis would be in stiff competition. No, all right, guys, we're doing it this year in No Film School podcast. The most directed movie. We will be handing out the most directed movie, the most cinematography movie. Mm. Uh, these are not mm. the best. These are the I most. Like it. Yeah, the, the most awards. The most, the most awards. The most VFX. The most budgeted VFX. The, yeah, the, the schoolies. The schoolie awards. <clears throat> oh, the most sound designed. I'm really excited to think about what is the most sound This will movie. be a podcast. It's got to be Top Gun, right? Probably. Yeah, Top Gun's probably... It's not going to win in any of the other categories. It's not the most directed by any means. It's well-directed, but not most. But Would it is the probably the most... Movied? The most movie movie? The oh, most yeah, the most movie, movie of the year is, pro- is <laughs> Top Gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. guys. All right. <laughs> We're going to do our nominations next week. We will do our most awards. We'll figure out how to do it. But you, you watched it be born here. What is the most... Um, but yeah, I mean, Elvis also didn't, wasn't a hit. Like, that's what's so weird for me is usually you see stuff and you're like, oh, well, okay, uh, it didn't quite work, but you made a ton of money. So I understand why you're getting award nominations, but like, didn't quite work. I liked a lot of it. Didn't quite work. <laughs> and I love Buzz Lerman. It didn't quite work. And also it didn't make any money. And you're like, that's, that's more interesting than like, it's such a strange group, the Golden Globes. Anyway, we've got two other topics to move on to this week. We've got a good pivot on Top Gun Maverick. So news has just come out that the VFX crew for Top Gun Maverick was specifically discouraged from promoting their VFX work because the messaging – and here's, here's the thing. I have empathy for this because you're always, especially in our very crowded media marketplace, you're trying to make a simple message punch through. And the message the marketing team decided to punch through on, on Top Gun Maverick was practical effects. Top, Tom Cruise is really in those F-28, 271, SR-71, Elon Musk child name, Jets, um, and really flying them. And we had real cameras up there. And I understand from a marketer's perspective that muddying the waters by having the VFX companies market like, and here's how we did this shot with CGI, is confusing to a mainstream audience. 
But I also think it's like, as filmmakers, most of us have worked on other people's projects. And part of it is always that we get to show off the work we did. Like, that's always part of everything we do. With the exception of beauty work. My friend who does beauty work, his website's password protected because nobody wants to publicly admit Whoa, that they get beauty work done. interesting. Yeah, he has no public site. If you want to see his work, you ask, you email to ask for a password. Because, um, you know, celebrities get their faces fixed and don't want it public. It's like a private thing in his contract with them. So... It's weird to me. I don't know. It's a complicated one. I don't know how you guys feel about the news coming out. It well, all the like mistreatment of VFX uh, artists, uh, notwithstanding. I I think it kind of goes back to we we talked a little bit about it a couple weeks ago when we were talking about that weird Mission Impossible trailer thing. Behind, the behind the scenes the behind the scenes research. trailer deal. Like it kind of to me it plays into that same ethos where it's like uh, this whole thing of movies have to feel like they, you know, they, they, that whole in camera thing is, is such a selling point. And it's, it's, you know, I think people have widely gotten really sick of like the Marvel over CG type thing. And mm-hmm. what what's really interesting to me about VFX, modern VFX is it's, you know, so much of it is invisible. And like so often we watch things that we would have never thought had VFX in them and they totally do. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm imagining most of the ones in Maverick are of that uh, type where it's like just kind of hidden stuff, like things like, you know, adding mountains into the, the horizon line and, and just, you know, subtle things, clouds flying by at a certain way or whatever. And, and it's very often that those types of VFX just completely don't get any love or any, any consideration. But, you know, there's a lot of those sort of VFX houses doing work that if you knew it was a VFX uh, shot or a, a VFX heavy film, it, it could potentially win the Oscar for VFX because it's so good. You didn't even know they were there. And yeah, it's, uh, I just think it's funny that, <laughs> you know, we, they're just like, don't, don't, don't talk about it. Don't talk about all the great work you did. It made the film possible, but don't talk about it. It's just classic, yeah. classic Hollywood stuff. It, it, I, I totally agree with you, Todd. And especially, it's a bummer when we're seeing the VFX industry and people who work in it hit so hard. And, and then on the total flip side, I, I feel like we're, yes, it was this narrative of like, look how cool and practical this is. But meanwhile, I'm like, I recently watched Wrongfully Accused, the Leslie Nielsen g- classic, which every joke is like a pra- a brilliant practical effect joke. And I'm like, why aren't we celebrating or seeing any of that anymore? Like the like this this whole other world of practical effects that are outside of like stunts and like the this narrative of it's like, oh, it's Tom Cruise doing all this work. Like I see what they're trying to do from a marketing perspective, but I'm like, this isn't even this is controversial. This isn't even like Leslie Nielsen practical effects level, you know, like where's the art? Like, and, and I do think that like, there's, there's an element of where you can like appreciate what's going on from a execution standpoint, which it seems like this is really the narrative that they're trying to push with all these Tom Cruise efforts. But I also feel like it's taking, it almost takes away from the movie period because you should be able to watch Top Gun and have it be a seamless experience when Top Gun, the original was, they, they weren't, I guess there was a narrative of like the, they're actually flying these things and that's exciting and thrilling. But like, you know, I personally as a viewer and somebody who's like, just wants to 
enjoy these epic films for what they are. Like I, I think I feel the same about a shot from Avatar way of water that is beautifully executed, seeing it as a whole as a beautifully executed shot in Top Gun Maverick. And like, I kind of wish we could just enjoy it at face value and appreciate the, the Mm -hmm. whole team and effort that went into creating this one thing. Nobody should be silenced for the work that they've done. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, what's so interesting to me is that like, it's also like, you know, part of the reason like VFX people want to show off what they did too. And like none of the VFX are self-conscious in Top Gun. I think it's probably a little bit more than mountains and sky replacements and stuff. I mean, there's that whole scene where the plane is taking off from the enemy airfield where like all of these planes are blowing up around him. And I like can't imagine that they blew up that many planes. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe they were like, fuck it. Let's blow up like eight enemy airplanes. Like, I don't know what their, their aircraft explosion budget was, but I'm assuming some of that was CGI, but it was really well done. I mean, the complicating thing for me is that CGI is also finally getting good enough that you don't mm-hmm. notice it as much. You know, even 10 years ago, you were like, oh, yeah, that or 20 years ago, Gladiator, that lion is CGI. And you're finding yourself impressed with the lion, but noticing it's CGI. Whereas now, like, I could not I can't point to what shot in Top Gun Maverick is CGI, but there's 2,800 of them. So mm-hmm. and, you know, I've worked around VFX and Todd worked in VFX and neither of us are like, oh, that shot must have been. So it. As this thing becomes invisible, I think it's there's a danger in in brushing aside the labor that goes into it. And that's what makes me feel weird about this whole thing is like I understand the marketing need to make a simple public message. But I also love celebrating the hard work of people who go into doing this thing. And especially because that's one of the few areas where I think people where there is public attention, right? Like the mass public still doesn't really know what a cinematographer does. I was at – I was at like a brunch the other day with someone who's like parents worked in TV and he was super nice. And he's like, yeah, I still don't really know what cinematography is. And like his dad worked in TV, but he didn't work in TV. And like, it's a very normal human thing to be like, yeah, I don't really know what that job is. And like colorist, my parents still really don't know what a colorist is. And their son made a living doing it for eight years. Like it's VFX are one of the thing, one of the ways we let the public know that there are 400 people working on these. Mm-hmm. And so that's what feels weird to me about the whole well, it, thing. Well, it which reminds is tr- me of that oh. thing. It reminds me of that thing back in the day when um, Life of Pi, uh, when uh, Rhythm and Use won the, the VFX Oscar while they were actively in bankruptcy. And they tried to talk about it on the on the Oscars and they started playing the get them off the stage music. And, you know, that's the thing is like, I, I think the, the industry just wants people to not acknowledge the, the VFX work that that's mm-hmm. good and and it's it's one of those things where it's like really VFX only gets noticed or talked about when it's bad, you know, and yeah. and you know when it's ugly Sonic. But you know the the stuff <laughs> that's like hidden and a little bit more uh, under the radar, like it's ridiculous that they wouldn't let them talk about that. Is it like are they not allowed to put it on the reel and stuff? Like no, that? I mean I think it was just dis- the the article I read was they've been discouraged from heavily marketing. The work, which probably gotcha. means that there's a time window and then next year it'll be on everybody's reels. And I've worked with I've worked with that on projects where I've been like, you can't publicly associate yourself with it for six months after release, that kind of thing. Like, that's normal. But I also think the article is sort of hinting that, like, generally, like, we've all seen BTS videos at this point or watched them go by in our feed of Avatar The Way of Water and the work Wade did and all of that. And, like, we've all heard the stories about everything they did to get the water droplets right in the computer. 
And there's none of that on Top Gun Maverick. And I think that right. that was more that what they were hitting on is that that is kind of a way of sort of tuning out a large amount of labor that went into a project. It also ties into like removing all the craft categories from the Academy Awards. Yeah, yeah. Which just perpetuates awkward family dinner conversations when somebody's aunt is like, what do you do again? You make movies? You're not directing them? Yeah. No, I'm in charge of all the sound, Nana. (laughs) What? It sounds like like you you were at my Thanksgiving dinner this year. (laughs) And then this pivots us to a production that has the opposite problem. Megalopolis. I'm never going to stop talking about Megalopolis because it's a movie (laughs) that has been threatened for 30 years. (laughs) I know a guy who used the name Megalopolis as his stand-in for a movie when he was building this piece of software and he needed a movie title. Because he was like, well, Megalopolis will never get made, so I can just put Megalopolis in as the stand-in for a movie title. And that was 12 years ago he did it. And now Francis Ford Coppola, if you haven't been following it, Francis Ford Coppola has mortgaged everything he owns to put $120 of his own dollars into making Megalopolis. And for some reason... Decided to shoot on the volume, which is, you know, those like 360 LED spaces, which like literally, dude, if you just watched Mandalorian and then Andor, you would see how much better practical locations are than the volume. But whatever. You're building this thing about urban planning in the future and love. You had to use the volume, I guess. And word has just come out that everybody quit. Like the entire starting production designer, VFX supervisor, like the whole crew apparently just walked. And from the reports we're getting... There's a culture clash going on between a generation of filmmakers that were used to being tyrannical. Like mm-hmm. Coppola, I love, there's a couple Coppola movies I really love. I have a lot of respect for his filmmaking. But like, notoriously a, a filmmaker full of chaos. Documentaries have been made about the chaos he likes to invite. And a a world that's changed. You know, like if you read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and you expect to go to set and there to be a lot of cocaine... I've never been on set with, well, no, that's not true. It's been 16 years since I've been on a set with a lot of cocaine. I was on a job where there was a lot. But, like, for the most part, that whole, like, you know, the thing you read about in Easy Riding Ranger Bulls where, like, Dennis Hopper had, like, he needs cocaine at 2 o'clock and he needs weed at 4 o'clock. And it was on the call sheet. Oh, my God. Like, (laughs) is that real? Yeah. That's like a document. Like, there was a PA whose job it was to keep Dennis Hopper in the right drug at the right time. On Apocalypse Now, and it's like, it's it's not the 80s anymore, or that was the 70s even. And I think I'm not accusing Coppola of using drugs on Megalopolis because it's Atlanta, and he's 83, and I hope he's not using drugs. Um, there's drugs in Atlanta. I'm not saying there's not drugs in Atlanta. I'm saying, like, hopefully he's, like, having a nice southern experience and eating good food and not, you know, going wild. But I think there is – I think film sets have changed, and in a lot of ways for the better – And I suspect that there is a culture fit between what our modern expectation is of what a film set should be like and someone who has a 50-year career with what film sets used to be like. I love love this change. I, I think that it's really important to not bend to someone who is asking for people to do things that are out that are unreasonable just because a, they are successful in the past or B they are of a generation. And I think this, you know, one thing that Charles has talked about a lot is how the film industry sets standards for labor across all industries. And, um, and I think that 
it's interesting because I do think that occasionally it goes in the opposite direction. And I think this is one of the instances, behavior of people in power and what is tolerated is, is a little bit behind now. And, and so we're, I think it's really important that people who are in positions to, to unionize are feel empowered to do that, especially or walk if they're not being supported. And obviously there's a lot of factors that come into play, but like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's refreshing to see it. And it's, you know, I'm glad that behavior that is not being tolerated that used to be, that used to just be like, well, it is what it is. Get out of the business, honey. If you don't want to deal with this, it's a big accent podcast for me today. A big character. Podcast. <laughs> I'm like loving it. it. We need more. Yeah, we <laughs> but, but what I actually say, Gigi, is not that film sets things in a good way. My, my, my take is that film sets things in a shitty way mm. that like, we were, you know, the term multi-hyphenate, which is now a term you hear so many people say, mm-hmm. was invented in the 70s as a tax thing in California because of people having multiple jobs in the film industry. And, like, to this day, like, I was freelance 15 years before anybody else I know was freelance because I worked in film and there were no jobs. You just had to freelance. It wasn't a choice. And now we have Freelance Solidarity Project and all this other stuff. So, like, when I say film sets the labor terms, I mean that in a bad way. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want everyone to have these contingent freelance like everybody should have good salary jobs like we should all have pension bennies and like three weeks paid vacation but like the film industry didn't the film industry showed you that you could be a multi 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 billion dollar business and just keep everybody on contract Mm -hmm. everybody on freelance contract where you hire them the day you need them and you and other than that and other industries took note and were like oh wait a minute you mean i could just treat everybody like this and the problem that leads to is labor relations become very tenuous, where it becomes very hard to talk back to a boss. And the exciting thing about the film industry is the last couple of years is you're seeing more and more people in film be like, nah, fuck it. I'm not taking that kind of treatment. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Like, we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe Coppola is being really sweet and everybody's just annoyed at him for moving too slowly. We don't know. But <laughs> fair, I, we do fair. know it's a, it's, it's, it's a big deal when, like, everyone quits. It's a big deal when it makes it to the press that everyone quits. Yeah. And... It's a good thing that everyone feels empowered to quit, that the industry's busy enough that they'll probably all find other jobs really quickly, and that the culture is changing on film sets where behavior that would have been the norm 10 years ago I don't think would be tolerated on a lot of sets anymore. Mm -hmm. What's crazy, though, is the exceptions. Like, every once in a while, you still hear reports of, like, what was it? Some movie just got shut down because one of the actors in his 70s still thought it was, like, touchy-feely time with the PA. Yeah, it was a couple months ago, and I was like, like, I, I, yeah, the memo has not gotten to everyone that, like, no, we don't do that shit anymore. We mm. probably never should have done it, but we don't do it anymore, and some production just got shut down over it, and yeah. Well, in this one, it's like, he, you know, I know Coppola is funding it himself, so he's he's particularly set up to just, like, be a tyrant, and, like, I know he fired a lot of his VFX team. And I'm sure that's probably what's caused a lot of the bottleneck because that the movie's very effects heavy or whatever. So when you fire your whole visual effects team, everyone's going to be like, well, what is going on now? <laughs> you know, but it's just interesting. Like he's uh, I I'm very curious what's causing all this. And I every time I read the synopsis for the film, what I picture in my head just seems hilarious for some reason. Like I just f- feel like it's going to be really not not very good for some reason i don't know it's like i don't want to i don't know it just it's a weird synopsis i mean yeah but he he thinks it's going to be so good everyone's going to watch it every year on new year's day 
That is. He thinks it's going to become a new cultural touchstone, which like, look, Godfather is a cultural touchstone. Yeah. Like Godfather was all over the new season of White Lotus. Godfather was all over Sopranos. Like Godfather was a thing that everybody. So like maybe I also think it's interesting to look at it in terms of why you should never self-finance a movie. No matter how rich you are, you know, the only good self-finance movie I can think of is the one Tarsem did. Um, come on. Somebody help me. Tarsem. The Fall? Yeah, The Fall. But The Fall, good movie. Hold up. Original budget was $4 million, which he made directing commercials. And he was like, okay, I made the sale. I like the sale. But, you know, it wasn't a huge hit. He wanted to make another movie. He had enough money from directing commercials. He made The Fall. Original budget, $4 million, Final budget, $20 million, Which is a lot of money to float yourself. Yeah. And then no one would release it. And David Fincher and Spike Jones had to get together and create a distribution company to distribute it because no one would no one would release it. Now, it went on to be a huge hit. It became like the date movie of the year. It was in theaters forever. He made his money back. He went on to make like big studio movies again, like $100 million movies. But he's it. He's the exception that proves the rule in terms of self-financing a movie. And even in his case, it went five times over the original budget. Mm. I I can't think of any other self-financed at that scale. I know plenty of people who went out and made a $20,000 movie on their credit card. I know. I was like, Sam Raimi did something. I'm talking about like scale. And yeah, like, yeah. I am, there's a production, we're a t- like, you know, the yeah. fall yeah. production, $120 million movie. I don't think it is a good idea to, as much as I've been frustrated by financiers that I have collaborated with in the past, mm-hmm. there's an argument to be made for the tension between their desire to stop you spending money and your desire to spend more money. Right. And when that tension goes away, I, th- it's... It, it feels like a little bit of like a king on his throne getting whatever he wants. Again, the yes, the yes person effect uh, versus like when there's a actual a budget and the reality of a budget and people who are invest who are in charge of accounting for that creates restrictions that I actually think create creativity and make yeah. something be followed through. Yeah, I mean, even James Cameron makes other people pay for the Avatar movies. Yeah. He could pay for them, and he makes someone else do it. Um, and and his deep-sea exploration and everything. It's all, do other people pay for that? Well, he, he makes documentaries uh, about yeah, them yeah. so that he can pay for the, the, the things with the documentaries or whatever. And to yeah. that point, I watched Titanic on New Year's Eve into New Year's Day, so I guess he's the winner in this mm. argument. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Some competition for uh, Megalopolis one day. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) All right, guys. So that has been the No Film School podcast for this week. We be on the lookout the next couple weeks. We're going to have nominations for the mosts. You can hit (laughs) us up on Mastodon if you have nominations for the mosts. And we will will put together our most awards. We'll have a nominations week. We'll have an awards week. We'll do the whole thing. There are articles on this website, nofilmschool.com, that talk about some of these subjects that you should check out. George isn't here, so I feel like I should make fun of George here, but I'm not going to. He's on Twitter. I'm on Mastodon. Take your pick from there, which one you should try and pursue. Hint, it's Mastodon. It's way better than Twitter. And um, I'm on Mastodon. That's that's all at I'm trying Pain? Yeah. At barbecue.snoot. At barbecue.snoot. Yeah, I can't forget barbecue snoot. I love it. That snoot life. Um, I'm Gigi Hawkins. Uh, you can follow my work at Lost in Graceland and on mastodon.barbecue.snoot. Uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube at am I a filmmaker? <laughs> <laughs>